0: Called Open Heart. And uh, if you've not had an opportunity to be a part of our services and have no idea what we're talking about here, essentially for the last five or six weeks, we've been opening up to the heart of the different books in the New Testament. So we look at the different books there and we open right to the core. We cut right to the core of these books, specifically the letters that Paul wrote. And we're just reading those few verses that really are the core of that letter. And at the same time that we're doing that, we're asking God to just open us up right to our core and just take that core of that letter and speak it into our very heart. So that's what this whole series has been about. We are coming to the end of it. So we've only got two weeks left, this week and next week. And and then November 5th and November 12th, that week there from November 5th to November 12th, we're doing what we call our Missions Convention. And if you've not been a part of a Missions Convention in the past, essentially What a missions convention is this, is that it is about us looking at the ways that Praise Assembly is involved in ministry beyond just our walls, beyond just the the boundaries of our city, Uh, how we're involved in ministry around the U.S. and around the world, and and the different uh, ministers, missionaries that we support around the world, and what that looks like in order to kind of give a window into that so that we can participate in it. And so we take a week and we focus on that, two Sundays, Sunday to Sunday, and we call it our Missions Convention. On November 12th, we have with us Dr. Mark Hossfeld, uh, who has been a minister and a a missionary working with uh, in the Arab world, specifically with uh, Muslims. He was former director of Global Initiative, and then uh, the president of Assemblies of God Theological Seminary. He's going to be with us, Dr. is going to be with us on the 12th, and so make sure to join us for that. On November 11th, the day before that, we've got our missions banquet, which is an opportunity for us to get together, have a dinner, kind of talk a little bit about missions. We're going to have two missionaries that are going to come and share just a window into what it looks like to be a missionary, and so I encourage you to join us for that. Uh, We are not charging for the tickets. You can stop out in the lobby and pick those up at the welcome desk. You can just sign up and say, I want to be there for that. So make sure to do that. We need to know how many to expect. We've got room, tables, and chairs for somewhere around 200 to 250. So make sure to get signed up for that as soon as possible. That is November 11th, um, 11-11. It'll be at 11 p.m. Okay, so make sure to join (laughs) us. It'll be at 6.30 because that's praise standard time, PST, if you didn't know that, everything's at 6.30 at praise, Uh, so 6.30 on 11/11 or 5 o'clock, look at the thing. All right, (laughs) so we're coming to the end of this series, and as we were kind of trying to figure out, because we didn't have enough time, we've only got two weeks left, and we're trying to figure out, okay, so which letters do we do, and we have to skip some because we don't have enough time to do all of them, so we're like, which ones do we want to do? And there are certain letters that Paul wrote to entire churches. And that's really where we've been throughout this series. But then he wrote four letters to not entire churches, but to individual people. And so I wanted to cover some of those. And so today we're going to be jumping into one of those letters. And everybody covers First and Second Timothy. So I thought, hey, let's open to one of the ones that we most of the time miss, and that's Titus. So if you would open up in your Bibles to the book of Titus. If you have no idea where that is, it's after Second Timothy and before Hebrews, okay? And if you find out where it is in your Bible, then you can flip to the next page and see Philemon. That's where we're going to be next week. Um, So we're in Titus today. Titus is uh, one of those books that um, you kind of got a little bit of background, and it helps you to understand more, okay? So Titus was one of Paul's lieutenants, one of his Trusted kind of co workers in the faith, but he called him more than just his lieutenant or co worker. He's one of three guys that Paul personally refers to as a son or a child in the faith. He calls Titus uh, his my true child in the faith, which is high, high praise. So he's a younger guy that Paul thinks very highly of. And so um, uh, Titus is someone, though, that when he was traveling in ministry, um, one of the places that he went and he visited was Crete, which was an island in the Mediterranean. And he left Titus behind there. Okay? So he leaves him behind on this island in the middle of the Mediterranean, which it's the largest of the Greek islands. At some point, I want to go and visit Greece. It's one of those things that Elizabeth and I have always wanted to do. We want to visit Israel. We want to visit Turkey, you know, the area that in the Bible we find a lot of the churches that Paul is writing to in Turkey, and then to Greece. In fact, we had planned on going to Greece in 2010, 2011. Claire was just born, and so we were ready to take a vacation and get as far away as possible. But we, so we set this all up. We rented, rented like a, an apartment and everything right off of Syntagma Square. We were so stoked about it. We were like six to seven weeks out from actually flying out. So it was the perfect time to buy tickets. The day, no exaggeration. No, I was going that day to pay for the tickets and buy them. And I saw in the news where the economy collapsed. And then there was rioting. And one of the videos that I saw of them rioting was on the very street. I could see where our apartment was. And I'm like, they had burning cars outside. I'm like... Let's buy a washer and dryer instead. So we did. Like, we have a really nice washer and dryer. And every time we do a load of laundry, we think, boy, I want to go to Greece someday. Um, so we want to go. And Crete is this island that's just south of Greece. It's a Greek island. It's the largest of the Greek islands, 120 miles long, 35 miles wide. And, and it's really beautiful. If you Google Crete, You'll see pictures of white sandy beaches and seaside resorts and villas. And you'll think, boy, this is a tough assignment for Titus. This is like being a missionary called to Hawaii, right? You're like, tough assignment. Well, Paul leaves Titus behind in Crete because of the fact that he needed to put the churches in order there. So he leaves Titus behind, he heads off on a ship, and then he sends this letter back to Titus with very specific instructions. And so today we're going to open to Titus chapter 2, the heart of Titus. And as you're turning there, don't close your eyes. I'm going to pray. But just so you can find it, Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Let's pray. Father, we just ask. I just ask. Oh, God, that even as we are opening our Bibles, that you would open us up. This is the most vital part. Because if you don't do this, Lord, then what we're about to try to do will be completely wasted. We might have a little tickling on the ear, but God, there is something so much more that needs to happen. And so we need you. We need your power. We need the power of Christ to rest on us. So in the midst of our weakness, we ask that you would just glorify Christ. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Titus chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what it says. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled and sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So, He leaves Titus behind, he then sends this letter, and in it he has instructions on how he's supposed to speak to different social groupings, and these social groupings are based on gender, they're based on age, they're based on socioeconomic scale and where they are. And so he starts by speaking specifically to older men, and he says to the older men, which the older men in that day and age would have been up to about age 60. Yeah, Yeah, 60 was about as old as they got before, you know, that was the expected. If you got to 60, you were doing good. So old men in this room that are over 60, this does not apply to you. This is for only those who are coming up on 60, okay? So just ignore me if you're over 60. There's got to be some benefit, right? So um, anyways, here he's speaking to older men, and he says to them, make sure you're sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in steadfastness. The, The gist of it is this. Old men, watch your minds. Watch the way that you think. Make sure that you're thinking in such a way that is dignified, and make sure that you're thinking in such a way that you are glorifying Christ. He says, "Old men, older men, watch your minds." Then he continues on, verse three. He says, "Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good." Now, there's a couple of things that I notice about this. Number one. He puts up two possible sides that this could go on. Number one, he, he has a woman who essentially is drinking a lot, lush, right? Like she, she drinks a lot. And then on the other side of the scale, he, he puts in the same exact boat with someone who's drinking a lot, someone who's like maybe totally uh, uh, very like put together and make sure that she's not doing anything wrong, but she's got a problem with slandering or gossip. And he doesn't really separate them. Like, he puts them together. It, either you're drinking a lot or you're gossiping. And, and I, there's a couple things that I think are just incredibly wise about the way that Paul does this. When he's talking to older women, he's probably somewhere up to the age of 50 to 55. That was the expected age. And if you did that, you were doing really very good at that time. And, and, and so he's speaking to these older women. And I love he's very wise in not referring to them as old women. Because nobody ever calls a woman old and survives. And so he doesn't say old women, he says older women. And in the spirit of that, let me just say for this, I'm not talking to old women, but women who are not as young as they used to be, watch your mouths. That's what he says. He says... He says, to women who are not as young as they used to be, watch your mouths. Make sure that you're not drinking too much and make sure that you're not gossiping too much. And he just spells that out for women. He says, here's why. Because you need to be setting an example. He says, you need to be teaching what is good. Verse 4, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, pure working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So he moves on from older men and women who are not as young as they used to be, and he moves to young women. And here to young women, he says to them, watch your hearts, right? And he says, you need to find a way to find older women who have walked the path that you're walking And become like them, which for some young women is incredibly scary. One time I was preaching a wedding, and I won't say whose wedding it was because they're in this room right now. And I was preaching this wedding, and I'm a huge believer that when you make a vow, you keep it. Right? Like, if you say, this is what I'm going to do, then you follow through with it. And I said to, and almost at every wedding I've ever done, I've said something to the effect of, okay, I'm standing right in front of this couple, and you all are on the other side of this couple, so we're, like, surrounding them right now. And, and as they're making these dedications, as they're making these vows, you know what we need to do? We need to make sure that we're hearing the words that they're speaking, So that in the future, if they don't live up to them, we talk to them about it. This is a part of of being a part of a wedding. You didn't just come to watch. You came to participate. And we participate in this wedding. So the wedding's over. And the groom's grandma comes down. And she says, Pastor, I just want you to know that was the best wedding I've ever been a part of. I said, well, thank you very much. She said, yeah, yeah, you know, most young couples don't want you in their marriage, but you just let me right into theirs. (laughs) And I was like, what have I done? (laughs) I said, God bless you. I'm out. I didn't say anything. I just walked out the door and I just left them to it. And and, and I don't know how it's worked out. And, and that's, I mean, because I just let her in and she was going in. And so for some of us, like, we hear this and we're like, boy, this does not sound interesting to me. But I know some ladies in this church that I would say these are the type of people that we should look up to and become like. Amen. And here, what I see here is that it says, They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to what? Love their husbands. They need training to love their husbands. Except for Liz. She needed absolutely no training whatsoever, right? Like it was like easy with me. But this is something where it's a part of our faith is, boy, you need a little training to love your husband and your children. But he says to the young women, he says, watch your hearts. And then he moves on to the young men. And he says, likewise, well, actually, before I get there, he says something right after. He says, that the word of God may not be reviled. I don't think we want to skip that because very clearly he's saying that there's a purpose behind this. Then he moves on and he says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, period. And I love this because, like, he only gives one instruction to young men because that's all we can handle, like... Just do one thing. I'm only asking for one thing. Do one thing. Keep your mind on one thing. One thing. And that's what we need. So be self-controlled. And then he talks to Titus specifically, and he says, as a young man, here's what I want you to do. He says, show yourselves in all respects, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. You set an example for them. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. That cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So speaking to the young men, he says, watch your actions. And then he says after that, he says again, comes back to the same idea, so that you will have opponents, but may you live in such a way that you cannot be condemned. You put them to shame, and when they want to say something bad about you, they're not going to have anything to say. Verse 9, then he moves to slaves or bond servants. And we're going to get more into this next week when we're in Philemon. But he says to the bond servants, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good faith. Again, So that in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So speaking to bond servants, he says, you you need to make sure that you're well-pleasing, that you're not stealing, that you're showing all good faith, that you're living up to the best possible expectation that you could ever live up to. And he says, essentially, watch your pride. He says, watch your pride. And he says, by doing these things, here's what you're going to do. You will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that word, adorn. Because what it's talking about is that you display the doctrine. You make it, you make it appealing. But it's not like over the top. It's crazy to think that we're already, <laughs> we're already at the end of October. And I'm pretty sure that January was yesterday, which means that very soon, we were talking about this just today, my wife and I were like, we got to figure out what we're doing for the holidays. Because the holidays are here, we're already at Christmas, and I, I actually—quick, this is not like a part of. I got time. Um, how many in here like love the fact that Christmas starts the day after Thanksgiving? How many of you are like, "Don't preach on Christmas till Christmas"? All right, good. That's very helpful. Thank you very much. <laughs> how many of you are like, "Let's sing carols all through November"? I mean, like, on Sunday morning for worship. And how many of you are like, don't you dare sing a carol until the day after Christmas? Okay. So you want to sing the carols, but you don't want to hear preaching. (laughs) I love it. Okay. woo (laughs) But this adorn word, like, I'm not... Part of the reason when Liz and I were looking at moving out of the city, part of the reason why we moved out to the country was we wanted to live in a house that we didn't, well, I wanted to live in a house that I didn't have to decorate. Like, because when you're in, in the city, everybody expects you to, like, do up your house, and if you don't, then you're, like, the lame person who didn't do it. Anyways, but out in the country, like, I'm nestled back in the woods, and I'm like, you can't see it from the road. If you're coming to my house, you're trying to be at my house, and that's a great thing for me because then I don't have to decorate my house. And, and so I love that. I've never decorated a house in my life. And when I see houses that are decorated, just so you know, what kind of my expectations for a well-decorated Christmas house is this. I like very clean lines. I don't want lots of droopiness. I think droopiness is terrible for Christmas. Christmas has no droopiness in it. Straight lines. And personally, I like white lights. Not a bunch of red and green and orange and yellow. Just give me white lights in a straight line and I am happy. And, and, and if you have additional lawn ornaments, I'm good with lawn ornaments as long as they are they are well done. Like anything that blows up and moves around, that's not Christmas. I don't know what that is, but it's not Christmas. Okay, so, so I'm going somewhere, I'm sure of it. Like, here's what I'm saying. It's the same with my Christmas tree. I think Christmas tree decorations should draw attention to the tree, not to themselves. Can I get an amen? No? Okay. (laughs) I think the Christmas tree decorations should be when you walk in the room first thing in the morning and the lights are on, you walk in you go, that is a beautiful tree. Not so many decorations mess that you're like walking you're like, those... I think there's a tree underneath there somewhere. I want it to bring out the natural beauty of the tree, okay? I'm serious about this. This is important stuff. Well, the word adorn is that. It's not gaudiness. It's not like, hey, bling. It's like, wow, look at the beauty inherent within this, and we're just showing it. Okay, so the word is actually a jeweler's word, and it's the word that when you've got a bunch of gems and you want to show them off, you don't like flash them up, but you display them beautifully because they have enough inherent beauty that if you see the gem, you'll know it's beautiful. What Paul is saying here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a beautiful thing, and that our responsibility is not to gaudy it up, but instead to show the beauty there with our lives. We adorn the gospel. The doctrine of our God and Savior with these things. Okay? So he says, Adorn this. And he says, Then to older men, Adorn the doctrine of our God with sound faith and love and steadfastness. And old women, Adorn the doctrine of our God with reverence and sound teaching. And young women, with, with love for your family and for your children and for young men, with self-control, and he says to bond servants, with, with humility. He says, adorn the doctrine of our God with these things. And here's why, and now we get to the heart of Titus. Here's why you do these things. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all People, salvation has come. He says that the grace of God has appeared, that the grace of God has broken over the horizon and the light of salvation has pierced the darkness. Just yesterday I was reading Malachi 4.2. But for you who fear the Lord, it says, and I was reading this in my personal devotions and after I read this verse, it was, it was something that like I wanted to do what it said. It says, but for you who fear the Lord, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go leaping like calves from the stall. And I was like, yeah, I'm feeling it. That's awesome. Because here's what this says. The grace of God has appeared and it brought with it for us salvation for all people who believe. The who believe is super important on this, but the salvation is available for all. He says, as a result of that, adorn this good news with good action. He says... The penalties of sin have been broken. And now you have salvation. So adorn that good news with good action. He continues on. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. I love this. This is such a beautiful description of what grace does. Because I think we often think of the grace of God as breaking the penalties of sin, but we don't think of it as breaking the power of sin. Because what this says is that the grace of God not only has appeared bringing salvation, but what else does it do? It trains us. God's grace doesn't just save us, it trains us it brings us along and it makes us more and more like Christ and he says as as you are living he says we renouncing ungodliness, worldly passions and living self-controlled he says upright and godly lives in the present age and that present age is hugely important because of what comes next verse 13 waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he says, essentially, that we live in between the two appearings of Jesus Christ. We live after his first appearing, which is an appearing in grace. And we live before his second appearing, which is an appearance in glory. He says, we live in the present age, in the time between the appearings. And as we live in that time, we are trained by the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God in order to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, And godly lives in the present age. Godly lives speaks about our standing before God. Upright speaks about our standing before other people. He says, this is what the grace of God does for us. It purifies us. It it walks us through this. And in verse 14, it actually continues and says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession." Who are zealous for good works. What a beautiful turn of phrase. Let me read that portion of it again: Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Purifying a people for his own possession. I read that, and I think, what does it mean to be purified for his possession? Well, we go all the way back to verse 1, down to verse 10, and we read about what it looks like. You know what's really interesting to me? The Bible has more to say about how we should act in our home than how we should act in our church. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. 1 Timothy 5, Titus 2, 2 Thessalonians 3. Why? Because God is more concerned with how we act in our home than how we act in our church. And God's grace not only redeems us, it redeems our relationships. So he writes this to whom well, to mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. He is concerned about our relationship. And this whole passage of Scripture is what's called the household items. And you find it all through the New Testament. Because God's concerned with how we live in our homes. But there's another purpose to it. See, I've read four times in here. At least four times in here. Where Paul says to Titus that the reason why we do these things, number one, is so that we may not be reviled in verse 5. In verse 8, so that an opponent cannot condemn you, that they may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about you. And in verse 10, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And even after verse 14, the very next verse, verse 15 says declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you and and or just ignore you so in other words what he is saying is live in such a way that those around you see you okay so here's the amazing thing about this and this is probably the most vital thing for us to grasp about this passage of scripture is that these are called household hold items and we find them all through the new testament But you know whose households these items are from? These are Greek values. So in the Greek culture, if somebody who was Greek came along and read this, they would look at this and say, oh, that's a fine home. That to the Greeks, he says, you live in such a way that you are fulfilling these Greek values. But he says not just Greek values. He is speaking to Titus, who is on the island of Crete. And the Cretans, if you've ever heard that phrase before, were not exactly known as the most upright of Greeks. The rest of Greece looked down on the Cretans. Cicero, who lived about 100 years before this, who was like a Roman philosopher who who really Western thought, really influenced Western thought, he spoke of the Cretans and he said, to the Cretans, highway robbery is honorable. And even if you look in, in, in Titus chapter 1 verse 12, he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Like the Cretans were, the the actual island was really founded and started by a bunch of mercenaries. So here is a culture and a group of people who hold these high Greek values but don't even come close to living up to them. And he says, we have a convergence, we have an alignment. He said, verse 1, in the very beginning of this, he says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So he says you have this convergence where you've got these Greek values and you've got this group of people who are not even close to living up to them and you've got things that are important to God. And all of these things come together in what is important in the home and what the home looks like, Okay. So he says, with this convergence comes an opportunity. He says to him, because of this convergence, you have a chance to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make it look pretty. Okay? So if this is the case, he says, you live these values so well values that are honored by the people around you, but quite honestly, don't live up to them. You live them so well that when other people see it, they look at it and man, they might want to speak bad about you, but they got nothing. You live them so well that when they look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might say, okay, I know I hold that value and I have no power to live up to it. And quite honestly, I'm not even close, but they are able to. What do they have going for them? and say, maybe I should check that out, okay? So this is what this looks like in our culture. Two weeks ago, I read the news. I'm never doing that again. (laughs) Because I read about Harvey Weinstein. And boy, man, the stuff I read was just ugly. I mean, just base. I mean, just terrible, despicable. And really, it hurt my heart even to read it. Like, this is what this world is. And then I read the reactions to it. And people are shocked. Shocked. Those who are politicians who took money from him. Shocked. Actors and actresses. Shocked. And I read it. And I was not shocked, because here is a man who has power in Hollywood taking advantage of young ladies who come to Hollywood looking to make a break of it. This is a surprise to somebody. This is what they do. This shouldn't shock us. And I read it, and I'm like, this has been going on for decades. He's not the first, and he's not going to be the last. This is what men with power with no moral compass do. And so I read this, and I'm like, okay, if you're surprised by this, you'll probably also be surprised that in Washington, D.C., there are politicians who are self-serving and corrupt. Shocked. Hollywood has never been, is not now, and never will be a paragon of virtue. And I'm not preaching against Hollywood. I'm just saying this is the way that it is. This is the world that we live in. And yet our culture says we value women. Oh, man, we need to make sure they can break the glass ceiling. But then in reality, we also honor Hugh Hefner as someone who somehow liberated women. He wore around a bathrobe with a woman on each arm and had at least two girlfriends at all times. So our culture says we have this high moral standard. We have this high value system. But then in reality, it's not even close to living up to it. So what do we as believers do? Ah. We have a convergence because we have something that our culture says it values, in reality does not even come close to living up to, and what God desires from us. So we have Titus chapter 2, verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourselves in all respects to be models of good work and in your teaching show integrity and dignity. Older men be dignified and self-controlled in faith and in love and in steadfastness. Here are values that are God's that if we live them, our culture will look at us and say, why do you have this when we don't? So we live this so well that it puts them to shame. Which means, men, as I read this, I see nowhere in here that it says it is the woman's responsibility to make sure that your mind stays in the right place. Nowhere. I see you be self-controlled. They're struggling just to love you. They need to be trained to love you. You work on being self-controlled and you let them work on loving you, okay? And yet for years in the church, we've somehow taught that it's the woman's responsibility to remove me of the temptation. Uh Uh-uh. It is my responsibility to be self-controlled and keep my eyes where my eyes should be and my mind where my mind should be. Because as we live this, the culture around us will look at us and say, boy, we say we love that. We say we value that, but boy, we don't have it and they do. Why is that? Well, let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, or racial equality. Boy, our culture says that it values this, but I look at our culture today, and I sure don't see it. I see all kinds of racial struggle, and all kinds of anger, and Yet we've got Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, which makes very plainly clear that in Christ Jesus there is no Jew or Greek. That all that stuff is gone in Jesus Christ. Which means we had better live it than those around us. And we set an example that others see and they go, boy, I want that too. And why do we do that? And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the heart of Titus. And quite honestly, this works in every context. It works in our culture, in our nation. It also works at work. What are the values that your work espouses that line up with good, solid doctrine and don't fault and attack the things that don't line up. Instead, live the things that do so well that it puts everybody else to shame. Find those things that line up and you live them so well that people say, what in the world? You see, God is interested in redeeming our relationships. And quite honestly, he's more interested in what happens in our homes that happens in our church. And he wants us to live in such a way that we make Christ attractive to a culture that has no power to live up to its own ideals. And by doing that, we will adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. We won't be gaudy. We won't be flashy. We'll make it look good which is what's important. Father, right now, I just pray that we would all hear this message. And Father, I think too many times we offload responsibility on others. We offload the responsibility that belongs to us. Paul talked to every single group he could have talked to here. He specifically gave instruction to each of them. It all comes down to self-control. I heard that word a bunch of times. It all comes down to self-control. And Lord, right now, I just pray that you would help us all individually to carry that responsibility. God, it's not someone else's responsibility to make sure that my mind is set on things above. It is my responsibility. And Father, it is not someone else's responsibility to lay out for me the ideals that I should live up to. I should find those ideals and and, and those things that align with good, solid teaching. And go, God, I should live them better than everybody else around me and thereby put them to shame. So God, I pray that we would hear this message. And God, I pray that this would be solemn, that we would hear this deeply in our heart. And may we from this day forward look in every opportunity, those things in our culture that live up to good, sound teaching and those things that are valuable to God and live them so well that we adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, may we make it look good to those around us. Father, may we hear that message. In your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. If you're a guest here with us today, I just want to say to you, we're so glad you joined us. We have a love for you on your way out to hang a left and swing down to our guest reception where we've got some fresh, warm cookies waiting for you. Today, we're not ending with music. Instead, I pray and I hope that we hear this message and lock it deep in our hearts. That it is our responsibility and no one else's. So I want to end with a blessing over you. I just, in the name of Jesus Christ, ask that God would bless you and that in every opportunity the Holy Spirit would lead you to recognize those areas in your culture, in your world, in your school, and at home or at work where the good solid teaching from Scripture aligns with the culture around you. And may you feel the responsibility to live it so well. That you make the gospel of Jesus Christ attractive in the name of Jesus. As you go, I encourage you to hug at least two or three people. Go in the blessing and encouragement of the Lord this week and live this out, okay? May you live this out this week. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're a guest, again, if you would, stop in the guest reception today and pick up some fresh and warm cookies. God bless you.